This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Welcome to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. I'm Linus Wilson. It's been since February that we had our last episode. You heard the end of COVID road trip. I promised you that I was going to start the slow boat to Cuba in March, but I, it slipped to April. So we're going to do the second part of slow boat to Cuba. I don't think we're going to get through all of it. So there would be probably multiple podcast episodes of about an hour each. We had a, a podcast episode going back to episode 28, which was the first four chapters of slow boat to Cuba. So I recommend that you listen to that if you first although this is pretty interesting because we start with the round the world trip the start of the round the world trip uh and cast off the dock lines with stevie so we're still getting ready for the trip to australia so it's time to go leave new caledonia both borders are open australia and new caledonia there are no quarantines you just need to be fully vaccinated show that and i think a negative covid test and you're good to go in both places so both places are open for tourism at the moment i'm planning on solo sailing it but i'm also interviewing crew members if you're really keen to get an offshore passage uh i would say contact me on the the about form there's a there's a contact form on my youtube channels so either slow boat sailing or the linus wilson channel and tell me that you're interested and uh, maybe we can chat about that i typically you know i don't require contributions uh, i do typically require that you pay your transport to the boat and stuff like that and if there's visa fees you need to pay your own visa but the boat expenses are mine and and uh, the food i give you free food on the boat so happy listening to slow boat to cuba this is part two like i said go back to episode 28 and i the next few episodes I'm planning on just doing it, you know, part three, part four, because I think it's a six hour-ish audiobook if I'm remembering right, and so that will probably be over another five episodes, something like that. So a bit about the summer plans. I plan to go from Nomea, New Caledonia to Darwin, Northern Territories, where I plan to lay up the boat. Uh, that's a fairly quick trip we're gonna do and we're not gonna spend a lot of time you know just the whole COVID thing has made me less patient (laughs) and older so I just want to if things go well we'll be in Darwin at the end of this uh you know by early June or the end of June uh early July and if things are not going as fast then uh we'll we'll lay it up in queensland but my preference is to go to the darwin northern territories this summer so that that's a definitely a passage to Bundaberg, australia and then there's also a passage to across the gulf of carpentaria so a lot of sailing a lot of motoring a lot of uh, time uh, inside the barrier reef maybe not much time stopping and smelling the flowers Slow Boat to Cuba by Linus Wilson Copyright 2016 Linus Wilson All photographs are by Linus Wilson Cover art and maps are by Linus Wilson This audiobook is read by Linus Wilson and is produced by Ox River Publishing Lafayette, Louisiana, USA All rights are reserved, except for brief quotations. No portion of this book may be reproduced without the express written permission of the author or Ox River Publishing. Ox River Publishing is a division of Vermilion Advisory Services. Acknowledgements. I want to thank my wife, Jana Wilson, for all her support and encouragement. Further, I am grateful for the free and reduced price gear provided by our generous sponsors. That gear included a four-man offshore commander 2.0 life raft from Revere Survival, a nine-foot offshore Fiorentino para anchor, a 45-pound mantis anchor, the mantis chain grabber, and the mantis anchor swivel. Thanks are due to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast guests, whose good advice helped me prepare for this trip. Moreover, I'm grateful for all the good advice that I received from sailors on various forums and Facebook in preparation for this trip, 
and while outfitting and repairing the slow boat. Authors note, the names of some people in the book have been altered to protect their privacy. Chapter 5, Departure Day The long-anticipated departure day of April 29, 2015 had finally arrived. Janet and Sophie said goodbye as I readied the lines for departure. They were flying out that morning to a conference. Stevie was still sleeping, as I had asked him to do when I picked him up at the airport near midnight in New Orleans. I was ready to push off an hour after Janet and Sophie had left. The powerboat hot trick with a hole patched with red electrical tape in it was sticking out from the slip to the east of us in the direction of the exits. A light southeast wind on the gray morning meant that I needed a good speed to make the turn. I left the last doubled line at the bow. By the time I started the engine, Stevie was on deck. I had him take that port bow line off, but not turn the nose very much. I did not want to aim towards Hattrick's bow. Instead, I made the turn fairly easily, and Stevie did everything I asked of him on our first undocking of the trip. As I left Bucktown Marina for the last time at 9 a.m. on April 29, 2016, I noted the depth was 8.6 feet at dockside and 6.7 feet in the shallowest part of the channel. An old guy in a fancy sports car tried to walk through the security gate the week before. I let him in after he said he was had a racing boat with a 7-foot keel. He wanted to bring it to Bucktown Marina to be closer to the Wednesday night races. I told him that I didn't remember the depths, but my sounding on this day seemed to indicate that he would have some problem. I remembered running aground near the Bucktown Marina entrance on one of my last sails with Penelope before the basin was dredged. The current low of 6.7 feet was an improvement on the depths that were less than Penelope's 4.5-foot draft. I was still learning the deck layout and lost one of the shackles for the new halyards as I moved it to the side so that it would not interfere with the Genoa sheet. I tied it off and replaced it with the spare shackle. Our northeast course allowed us to be close-hauled with the east-southeast winds, and we made five to six knots under full sail with the motor off for most of the trip to Slidell before we turned east at the bridges. The 10 to 12 knot breeze made for nice sailing in one to two foot seas. This would be the best sailing we would see until we left Pensacola. Once we turned into the wind at the Highway 11 bridge, our six knots with no motor slowed to 5.2 knots with the engine turning at 2,300 RPMs. Daly had finally settled down in the cockpit with the motor running with our healing of 15 degrees down to zero. A 35-foot cruising boat was sailing close-hauled between the bridges, and I envied it as better wind angle. As I was 200 feet off the Highway 90 fixed bridge, the AIS collision alarm went off. Evidently, the tug that I saw paralleling the bridge northbound on the other side was headed through it westbound, and I missed its turn, but the AIS did not. I did a loop before going under the tallest span, over 65 feet. The tug went through when the coast was clear. We plunged eastbound under the bridge into the middle ground of Lake Pontchartrain. A 1.2 knot current opposed us in the Wrigley as we motored into the wind. I resisted turning into the Wrigley Marina at 2 p.m., but I was uneasy about entering Gulfport after dark. My thinking was that I wanted to pump out the holding tank at Gulfport. I started investigating Pearl River anchorages north of the Wrigley. We anchored off Hog Island north of the Wrigley at 2.45 p.m., southeast of the range marker. I had Stevie drop the Mantis 45-pound anchor while I turned on the anchor alarm at the helm. I forgot to warn him about looking out for the chain markers. He said he just saw one twist tie marker. Since I placed them at 30 and 60 feet, he had missed a few. We let out 180 feet of chain because I could see the road at 200 feet after I put out the Mantis chain hook and let 
out the snubber line. I took off the chain hook and we hauled in about 40 feet of chain before snubbing. With 15 feet of snubber, we ended up with 155 feet in six to eight foot depths. That was way more than was necessary, but the hazards were far away and the chain was already out. I did not bother to get out the Honda generator to run the air conditioner. It was only 70 degrees and the alligator reeds made for a windy anchorage. There was nothing taller than five feet over sea level to break the breeze. We opened the screen protected portholes and put on the new bug screen over the companionway. After a nap and a shower, I called our weather router. He mentioned a 20 to 30 knot front on Wednesday, May 4th. That seemed to throw a monkey wrench in my planned Tuesday departure from Mobile or Pensacola direct to Cabo San Antonio, Cuba. He mentioned light airs on Thursday. He thought we had to be moving south offshore by Sunday to race ahead of it. That seemed a risky proposition to me. I did not want to repeat my first Gulf of Mexico crossing in late 2014 in Contango when we got beat up by 20 to 25 knot winds offshore. I reasoned that our wind angle improved every mile we moved east on the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, GIWW. The winds were typically southeast. Northers, despite their good wind angles, were more wind than I was willing to sail offshore in. My plan was to motor east in almost any weather during daylight hours in the GIWW until we had enough easting to sail offshore without the discomfort and risks of a norther. Chapter 6 Stormy Weather We picked up the hook at 6.35 a.m. the next day. The Wrigley Swing Railroad Bridge was only a mile away. We got the tender to open the bridge and went into the Gulf of Mexico's indentation in the coastline known as Lake Bourne. I investigated the chain markings at the bow to find there was one zip tie at 30 feet and two at 60 feet. While I was doing this in three to six foot swells, the Mantis anchor was getting submerged in the swells as we motored at 2,300 RPMs. When I returned to the cockpit, I found Stevie clinging to the solar arch frame and the wind generator pole, trying to keep the two structures from toppling into the sea. Several supports for the generator and solar arch came loose. I tried unsuccessfully to secure one as we pounded with the engine straight into the waves, but this soon proved almost impossible. Finally, after a few minutes of this, I turned around and ran back for the shelter of the Rigolee. It was amazing how smooth our ride was running with the seas versus pounding into them. After we cleared the swing bridge, we anchored our bruised craft back into our old spot southwest of Howag Island. I let out 90 feet of chain with a snubber. We spent a couple of hours working to reattach the solar arch and wind generator supports. The fittings were just secured with a pointed screw tightened with an Allen wrench. They could come loose very easily. I dropped an 18 inch long by one inch wide stainless steel support in the water with one of its expensive end fittings that retailed for $19.95 at West Marine. In the blustery conditions, I also lost my floppy Ragin' Cajuns hat. Both sunk beneath the murky waves. The alligator's poor visibility and strong currents kept me from attempting to retrieve them. It was clear that I should have sprung for a welder or bought the pre-made arch from Fish on Sports, but I was not willing to retreat to find a welder or install a different arch. Both alternatives would surely take weeks. I could tap screws in the supports if they persisted in popping out. Further, I reasoned I could avoid the pounding by choosing my weather or not motoring at such high RPMs against the waves. When it came time to pick up the Mantis, I could not. I had Stevie do it while I went to the helm. The anchor was too dug in. Stevie could haul it in after I tripped it with the motor. The swing bridge at Rigolee warned that we would have to wait for two trains instead of entering the Lake Bourne at the Rigolee. 
I thought we could move mostly on our course by going up the Pearl River and exit at where the Pearl River intersected with another section of that railroad swing bridge. That would give us about six more miles of easting in protected waters. Our autopilot acted up as I made way through the Pearl River Channel. I almost ran aground several times as I tried to help Stevie raise the sails. We were only three feet from shallow water markers on the western edge of the channel. I swerved west, disoriented and lucky not to run aground as the depths flashed 4.7 feet on the chart plotter. The Pearl River had plenty of wind, but no waves, and its broad banks resembled a lake more than a river. When I asked the Pearl River Railroad Bridge to open, the tender said, I'm not sure that I can get it open. That was not the response I wanted after motoring six miles. He did get it open. Where are you all bound? You'll have plenty of wind. We're headed to Gulfport. Unfortunately, all the wind is in the wrong direction, I said. A 20-foot skiff followed us out of the Pearl River, but promptly turned around as it realized how big the swells were on this Saturday, April 30th, 2016. We had a very inauspicious start as we were often going no more than two knots with the engine on 2,000 RPMs. At least the solar panel mounts were not falling apart. After leaving the river, we could sail close-hauled, which was preferable to motoring into four-foot waves. I busied myself installing the shroud cleats and stanchion cleat for the emergency halyards. These were just to hold the halyards in place. No load should be placed on such cleats. Below, I installed loops and gates so the quarter burst storage was less likely to spill out. I used hog rings and pliers to make eyes with bungee cord, which attached to eyes and clips. The cords made a big X, which held in the outer storage cubes in the quarter berth. Eventually, our speed picked up from three to five knots as the seas laid down a little. Nevertheless, thunderstorm and tornado warnings came over the VHF during the last two hours of the trip. Very few boats were in the Mississippi Sound. I called into Gulfport, and they gave us a slip on Pier 3, number 64. I fixed bacon cheeseburgers and fries down below when Stevie interrupted from the helm, totally calm. I think the wind shifted. Can you help me let out some sail? I did not really get the gravity of the request. About 10 seconds later, I was up top, and the squall hit as I let go the main halyard and the main sheet. Stevie, let out the Genoa. He did, and we spilled wind before we were overpowered. We were easily making six knots. I furled the Genoa as the scandalized main pushed us forward in the 25-knot squall. We were soaked as we munched down our increasingly soggy burgers. We motored slowly into the southwest breeze to tie up the main as the Gulfport entrance channel was on top of us. An occasional five-foot wave thumped us until we had it all secured and motored to the marina. I readied the dock lines with Stevie at the helm. Then I took over as we came to the outskirts of the small craft harbor channel. The scary thing was that the boat was roaring into the marina at five knots with hardly any RPMs. The south swell and the wind was pushing us in at four knots by the time I got to the fuel dock. I started liberally applying the reverse to slow us to two knots, but we sped up whenever I went back to neutral. The high winds died down and the rain stopped as we seemed to be between squalls. Nevertheless, the cobalt blue skies seemed anything but benign. I asked Stevie to stop filming on his camera and help me look for slip numbers as I turned down Pier 3. Slip 64 was, quote, some way down, according to the marina staff, who I spoke to earlier. I got too close to a sailboat with a partially installed wind vane jutting out from the stern. 
Stevie pushed off from the protruding metal from the cockpit, and we did not scrape there. Still, the current was pushing us to the north pier and one slip short of ours. I hit the piling with the port stern and the overhang of the solar arch. The mount shuddered, and three supports popped out from the frame. I told Stevie to ignore this and instead focus on wrapping a line around the piling in our slip. Stevie did that, but it was not able to stall the northbound current pushing us into the back of the slip. The 10 to 15 knot south winds combined with the current moving south to north, and we got our stern pinned to the back of the slip. We struggled hard to move the boat forward with the bow line, but it would not budge. Eventually, brains won out over brawn and we brought in the line. On the finger slip, Stevie pulled the port bow line around the outermost piling, and I stood by the amidships cleat, ready to tie off any slack. Slowly, we brought the bow onto the finger slip and off the starboard side pilings and the back of the dock. Stevie gave thumbs up in his rain gear, holding the bow line as the double rainbow beamed behind him in the fading light. That was the last picture I snapped before my iPhone died. It was the last photo I took before I backed up my iPhone on my computer. After we were totally tied up, another squall blew in with 30 knot gusts. Daly and I walked in the stiff breeze in unreal skies with big waves crashing onto the beach which is next to the marina and extended many miles east. Daly's curly locks were flattened by the wind. The parking lot was full of people with their cameras out in the gorgeous sunset storm. Nick Galt visited us on the rainy rest day on Sunday, May 1st. He brought us a six-pack of pecan-flavored beer for me and a six-pack of root beer for Stevie. It was cool visiting with a fan of the podcast and hearing his sailing stories aboard his Catalina 22 sailboat. The rest of the day, I repaired the solar arch, screwing back in what popped out. I pumped out the holding tank for the last time. I also topped off the water and diesel tanks. We pushed off on Monday morning, May 2nd. The squally weather of the last several days had lifted and we had clear skies and light southeast winds. There was no wind to complicate our departure from the marina. Stevie slept in until about 10 a.m. I undid the lines and motored out into the calm waters between Gulfport and Biloxi. There I saw a submerged piling with only about a few inches above the water. I cut south of Deer Island, south of Biloxi, to avoid the hassles of Biloxi's endless buoys and the occasional fishing boats in a hurry. It was cool that I could see the tug and barges on AIS long before I could see them with my eyes in the hazy 70-degree morning. After Stevie took some watch, I busied myself below with work projects that I wanted to complete before going offshore. The wind shifted to south from southeast, giving us a better wind angle to unfurl the Genoa, but I hesitated raising the sail because of the squally sky. I was happy with the easy ride compared to Saturday's pounding. Two sailboats were racing to the north of us with full sail and overtook us off the western tip of Dolphin Island. Dolphins were playing at the bow, but I did not get a shot of them. I tried to program the international MMSI number into the VHF, but it would not accept any change to the MMSI without mailing it back to the manufacturer, according to West Marine Customer Service. They gave me the number of Unindin, the manufacturer, and a number where I could mail it. I laughed at the suggestion of mailing the VHF to change the MMSI from the boat U.S. domestic number to the international MMSI. The same U.S. government agency, the Federal Communications Commission, that required me to pay $215 for the MMSI, had a regulation that made it impossible to change the MMSI on my existing radios. 
I had no intention of sending back either the West Marine 580 in the cockpit or the Unit in 380 in the cabin. Waiting for them to be returned would have taken weeks and ruined any cruising plans for the summer. I could have bought new VHFs to avoid the government regulation gone amok, but I did not. The old domestic MMSI was good enough for me. I emailed and texted the weather router about what they thought of Wednesday, May 4th departure, since they warned of storms on Tuesday, May 3rd. The weather router responded, Maybe better to let the front squalls and strong winds clear the eastern gulf and depart at the end of the week. I had a meeting scheduled at work for Thursday, May 6th, with questionable weather it seemed best to look towards leaving the boat at a marina in Pensacola and going to the meeting. The later-in-the-week comment was a little vague. My reading of the weather on PassageWeather.com was that the winds would shift north on Monday, so Friday departure with light winds would make us dependent on the engine most of the way. I was of two minds about departing on Friday as we approached the east end of Dolphin Island and our possible anchorages. I did not want to rush into high winds and stormy seas, but I did not want to miss the only north winds for weeks. We almost surely could make Pensacola by Tuesday, and I could get the rental car and drive back on Wednesday to Lafayette, Louisiana. I could attend the meeting on Thursday and drive that night back to the boat in Pensacola, Florida for, for a Friday departure. I approached the Lafitte Bay Anchorage on the northeast side of Dauphin Island, Alabama. I kept on drifting off the 165-degree track from the Red Buoy 2 to the orange traffic barrel on a piling. That was the range for the deepest water. The southeast winds blew the boat off, and I had to point more 180 degrees to make good 165 degrees. Thus, I pointed west of my intended course. Thank goodness for the GPS and the old tracks. I saw depths as low as 4.6 feet, but that probably meant there was 5.4 feet due to the chart plotter's negative 0.8 foot error. Thus, I had 1.4 feet under my four-foot keel at the lowest point. When we dropped in the center of Lafitte Bay, we had 6.2 feet on the chart plotter. We let out 30 feet and then 45 feet of chain. With the 25-foot snubber line, we had 70 feet total out. With three feet of freeboard, that gave us seven to eight times scope. We backed down, and the mantis anchor seemed to hold. Stevie gave a sunset concert for me in the bay that night. It was the first and last concert of the trip. The snubber was loose, and the boat seemed to be drifting in the well-protected anchorage with the houses blocking most of the wind in all directions. The chain was messy with black and gray mud when we pulled it up in the morning at 6.40 a.m. on May 3, 2016. I was having trouble pulling up the mantis without tripping, and Stevie had to pull it up. I helmed out. The lowest sounding on the way was 4.2 feet or 5.0 feet with the 0.8 foot error. That was near where the chart marked the lip contour on the bottom. The wind shifted north, but it looked squally. I thought the squall descended on us and Stevie agreed, but it was just haze. This delayed us putting up enough sail to take advantage of the beam reach. A tanker passed in the middle of the mobile ship channel. The aft port elbow of the aft solar panel mounts popped out in the bigger waves of the ship channel. Stevie helped me pop that in underway. He held it in place while I screwed both in with the hex wrench. Then the middle support for the starboard side of the arch popped out. As I unscrewed the end fitting to adjust it, I stupidly dropped the small stubby screwdriver overboard. After that, we unfurled the Genoa and sailed under Double Reef Main and turned off the engine in Bond Secure Bay. We were able to make 4.5 to 6 knots close hauled. By the time we entered the narrow channel to Perdido Key and points east, we had too little wind to not run the engine. 
On the rest of the day's trip, I busied myself with the whisker pull track, which I had put off for months. I finished installing it as we motored around the east side of Perdido Key, passing Holiday Harbor Marina where Jana, Sophie, and Jana's sister Diana and I visited about three years earlier. When we arrived in Grand Lagoon, just west of Pensacola, I was surprised at how early it was. I found that the closest marinas in Pensacola to the Gulf of Mexico cut were in Grand Lagoon and not in the city proper. This first one was Southwind Marina. It was $1 per foot with electricity and water. That seemed like a no-brainer, and I asked for a slip, and they said I could take any I wanted. None of the Grand Lagoon marinas had breakwaters, but the Grand Lagoon is a pretty protected body of water, so I decided to chance it. It is much longer east to west than north to south. The marinas lie on the north shore. Only a stiff east or west winds would pose any problems, and the winds were usually south. Storms came from the side of least fetch, the north. I was not prepared to go in so early, so we hovered in neutral while I readied the lines. It rained while we got ready to go in, and we got on our light raincoats. The long-haired marina manager pointed us to the south side of the fuel dock. It was only a side tie on the south side of the marina. I went for the big slip just north of the fuel dock so that we could have pilings on both sides to pull the boat off from the wooden dock. He complained bitterly when we eased into that slip. He was convinced that big slip would, quote, crack up the boat. I assured him that we could use the lines to protect the boat, and I said I would not move. He relented, and we checked in. Chapter 7. Oops, I did it again. I was busy organizing and cleaning the boat, when I took out the trash late at night at 10 p.m. I was expecting our episode 23 guest of the podcast, Annie Dyke, who was going to visit in the morning. I called her up because she had her boat in Pensacola. She planned to film the boat, which she did, in episode 8 of her boat tour series of HaveWindWillTravel.com on YouTube. Some moderate effort at cleanliness seemed like a good idea. I could not see anything outside. There were no lights on the dock. I was a little unsure where it was, and instead of stepping, I jumped. That was a bad idea. The fuel dock was slick with the diesel and rain mixture, and I slipped so that my waist dangled below the dock. I could not get my legs up onto the dock, and I slowly slipped down into the black water, scraping myself on the barnacles as I did. I had my iPhone in my pocket, but I was so freaked out by the situation that I did not bother to take it out and put it on Contango or the dock. My life-proof waterproof case had ripped out earlier on the trip when I tried to remove the orange life-proof float case. The float cases ironically destroyed the waterproof feature of the life-proof cases. I have been unable to find the floats for newer generations of iPhones beyond 5S, and I wonder if the design problems with the earlier model float cases had something to do with that. I had planned on replacing the ripped out case as soon as we got to the rental car the next day, but I never got the chance. The phone died with the ripped out, no longer waterproof case. I yelled for Stevie to help me. To my surprise, he came out. Jana has never heard me from the cabin when I fell overboard. But Stevie got there before the sharks found me with my bloody leg. At least that was racing through my water-soaked head. I could have swum to another boat with a swim step, but Stevie came out so soon I never needed to. He struggled to drop the boarding ladder as I had never taught him to use it. Five minutes later, I was aboard. Stevie cradled my dead iPhone 5S. That kind of annoyed me since I thought he should be more worried about me than the easily replaced, albeit overpriced, gadget. Stevie was a modern young man with several social media platforms that he connected with the followers of his trips. 
he may have lived in a cave when I first spoke to him over the internet, but he found a way to get online and had two iPhones. In addition to a GoPro, Stevie did not pay for cellular coverage in his backpacking journeys, nevertheless. So he was lobbying for a arena with free Wi-Fi, like at Golfport, but I opted for this one, promising to let him use our super-fast Wi-Fi in Lafayette. In the end, I wish I had chosen any other marina than Southwind Marina. The next morning, Stevie and I met Annie Dyke, the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast's episode 23 guest. We all laughed a lot and had a lot of fun during the interview and while she filmed the boat on video 8 of the HaveWindWillTravel.com boat tour series. I really used my iPhone a lot on the boat and I wanted to replace it before I went offshore. My favorite thing is the Navionics app which works off GPS, not the internet. I really did not want to go offshore without it. I also found my iPhone 5S made texting with the satellite phone much quicker with the Bluetooth tethering feature. The text-only satellite phone did not have a touchscreen or a keyboard. Without it tethered, I had to scroll through the 10-digit keypad to type each letter. This took 20 times longer than typing on a computer, tablet, or smartphone. I went to the AT&T store thinking that I was due for a free upgrade after over 24 months. I bought a new phone only to learn that they did not do that anymore, and I was out the full $900 for the iPhone. That may have saved money in the long run since our roaming bills with AT&T international plan in the Bahamas were astronomical. With an unlocked phone, we could put in local pay-as-you-go SIM cards in foreign countries and use the iPhone as a hotspot. That is preferable than using our MiFi, which we unlocked in the Bahamas after paying a $90 unlocking fee greater than the MiFi's were selling new. The problem with the MiFi is that the foreign cellular providers typically have you top up only with a cell phone keypad that the MiFi lacked. Thus, you could not top up the MiFi SIM card without a cell phone on the network. We got around the Catch-22 in the Bahamas by buying a local locked phone. That solution was expensive when visiting multiple countries and cumbersome. SIM cards can often be bought and topped up at more places than sell local phones. My waterlogged iPhone 5S, which was unlocked, could have been traded in for about $250 for a new iPhone 5S at an Apple store. If I had known that I was paying full price at the AT&T store, I probably would have driven to the Apple store and saved the $650. AT&T did not make it clear that there was no $400 discount on a new phone anymore, and I paid full price with a monthly payment over 30 months masking the true sticker price. I had to discontinue the monthly payments and pay in full to get it unlocked, which was not an issue for me. At least I had an unlocked replacement iPhone before leaving the country, but it was not cheap. It was one of those boat days on the water. Break out another thousand. I bought another life-proof waterproof case, but of a different model, the Nude. The Nude has no screen to rip out like the last one. Nevertheless, as I am writing this less than six months later, I have to replace it because the flap on the charging attachment is no longer waterproof after a tiny plastic attachment has broken off. I bought the accompanying life-proof holster for the phone case the same day that I bought the phone, but that did a poor job of holding the iPhone 6S. After I dropped the phone on the ground five times on the first day because it popped out of the life-proof holster, I abandoned using the holster. Luckily, none of those times did the brand new phone drop in the water, but it came close. I learned 
as we were bobbing just inside cell phone range off Pensacola that the iPhone 6S does not tether with my text-only satellite phone. That was a disappointment relative to the 5S iPhone that I ruined. The latter had no problem tethering to the satellite phone. Stevie's older model iPhones did tether while he was sending frequent and long texts to his girlfriend. I only used the satellite phone for occasional weather or a couple of concise texts because it was so hard to type directly onto the satellite phone. The other problem with buying the new phone was AT&T turned off Janice's texting capabilities on our plan when I activated the new phone. The salesperson changed our texting plan and turned off her ability to text while she did it. Jana missed all her texts for three days, but we only realized that after I was trying to text her offshore. Chapter 8, Offshore for the First Time My idea for going to St. Petersburg for this passage was that we could reach it in two days before the winds turned southeast. Once in St. Petersburg, we would have won all the easting we needed, and most winds would be fair to Cabo San Antonio, Cuba. We did not have enough north wind at the tail end of the front to head straight for the western tip of Cuba. Headwinds would slow us if we got greedy and tried the direct route to Cuba. Besides, we could recharge, refuel, and get more provisions at anchor on the west coast of Florida. Venice Inlet by my parents' house was too far to make in daylight in two days, but the north channel leading to St. Petersburg seemed doable in 54 hours. A couple anchorages that I visited or got cl a close look at on my way back from the Bahamas lay just inside the protected waters of the North Channel. If we ran short on time, we could aim for clear water, but I preferred the anchorages at St. Petersburg. Before we had the 45-pound mantis, I was using a 33-pound plow anchor on my way back from the Bahamas. We dragged badly in a squall, anchoring next to the busy Clearwater Peach Marina on that trip back. There really was no great anchorage that I remember near that cut, and it was a couple of day sails from my parents' house. In contrast, the North Channel to St. Petersburg was only one daylight sail away from Venice Inlet. We were on the road by 4 p.m. and back in Lafayette by 9 p.m. so I could attend my meeting on Thursday, May 5th. The weather reports were for 20 to 25 knot winds or 18 to 24 knot winds offshore on Wednesday and Thursday, respectively. Both forecasts violated my rule of no Gulf of Mexico departures with forecasts over 20 knots. The weather router suggested that lighter winds from the north would fill in on Friday afternoon with no squall risk, unlike on Wednesday. After my meeting on Thursday, we drove back and got into the boat at 1 a.m. I interviewed our episode 16 guest, Tyler Brandt, who was 80% of the way done with sailing his boat, the Wizard's Eye, around the world while we were in the car, and I used the MiFi to run Skype on my computer while we sat in a parking lot. I had been trying to get in contact with Tyler for months, but that meant we got in a little late, about 1 a.m. on Friday, May 6th. I was freezing when we got back. All I had on was a short sleeve polo shirt. Our afternoon departure meant we could sleep in. Of course, I did not, but at least Stevie could sleep in and did. Stevie, not surprisingly, was typically on a later schedule than my 10 p.m. bedtime, and it seemed pretty natural to put him on the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. night watch. I, on the other hand, was up at 7 a.m. on the last morning before our first offshore passage. I bought tools and groceries. In particular, I got yet another Imperial hex wrench set to make the repairs on the solar panel arch. This set was easier to turn in tight spaces compared to what I already had on board. 
I also replaced the screwdriver that I lost and bought spare screwdrivers of other sizes that I did not have spares of. By 10 a.m., all the groceries were packed in the boat, and I dropped off the rental. We threw off the dock lines on a clear, crisp, sunny afternoon just before noon. The ocean cut in Pensacola is so wide and posed no problem with the wind from the north. There was not much wind until we started losing sight of land and getting out of its lee. Then it freshened to 10 to 20 knots from the northwest, and we had a boisterous sail despite reducing from full sail to the second reef. We followed the rule. If the paddle wheel knot meter averaged over six knots, then we would reef down. I set a waypoint to the north channel about 300 miles away before Stevie took his first watch between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. With the waypoint programmed in, all the helm had to do was one-degree adjustments on the autopilot to keep us moving along our chart plotters bearing for the route. I saw another boat on my 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. watch and sighted a flying fish off the starboard stern as I lost sight of the last condo ashore in the haze. On my 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. watch, I saw a light bob over the horizon, but it could have been a planet rather than a boat. The wind shifted from the northwest to north as we headed southeast. I had set a two-hour on and two-hour off watch schedule during the day until 10 p.m. Then there were two four-hour night watches. Stevie got the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. watch. I got the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. watch. I initially hesitated to put on my scopalamine seasickness patch until we got three to five foot seas. The swells gave us at least a knot of boat speed on our 125 degree southeast course. I kept the speed up high this first night because I wanted to anchor before dusk on Sunday. During my night watch, I attempted to tune the SSB receiver, but I settled for an FM classic rock radio station out of Panama City, Florida, that it picked up. So much for my plan to get SSB weather on the cheap. After Stevie relieved me around dawn, I slept all my off-watch periods until 3 p.m. on Saturday, May 7, 2016, when I finally felt rested. By that time, we had throttled up the engine to 2100 RPMs as the more boisterous north wind died down to nothing, and there was just a beam-on three-foot swell. After the wind shift, Stevie needed the lee cloth for his port side single berth in the middle of the cabin. I was fine lying on the starboard side of the V-berth with daily off-watch. The port side of the berth had Stevie's big backpack and guitar. Daly and I were on the lower side and were not bothered by the junk on the high side of the berth. On my 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. watch, I realized the shackle attaching the Genoa's clue to the furling drum came unscrewed and the U-part of the shackle was nowhere to be seen. Evidently, it was at the bottom of Davy Jones's locker. The screw fitting was on the bowsprit. I got out another screw shackle and secured the screw with a small zip tie so that would not happen again. Jana told me to text her once a day with the satellite phone, but she did not seem to be getting my messages. I figured that perhaps there was some technical glitch that we had failed to anticipate before the first offshore passage. I had my parents call her and she realized that AT&T had turned off her phone's texting capabilities. Stevie sighted the green side light and the stern lights of a boat on our starboard side on his 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. watch. I had pointed out two boats on the AIS before he relieved me at 10 p.m. Only one was ever within visual range, and that boat was headed north. I fought boredom during my overnight 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. watch on Sunday, May 8th, creating YouTube-compatible versions of past episodes and editing the interviews with Doinia Cornell and Tyler Brandt, which would become episodes 16 and 17 of the podcast, respectively. I popped my head out to see that all was well 
every couple of minutes. A little bird landed first on the bow pulpit, then it sat on the cabin top. It spurned the grape I left for it, but it stayed for a good while and did not bother to fly away when I went in and out of the companionway, which was a few feet from it. I think this was a good indicator of land being near. After relieving Stevie at 8.20 a.m., I spotted three different boats on the distant horizon as we angled into St. Petersburg about 20 miles offshore and 30 miles from the North Channel. I put a preventer on the main through the second reef clue to stop it from jibing with each swell. The light southeast winds were filling in and we were motor sailing with the furled Genoa and double reef main. Most of the wind seemed to be in front of us and probably was from our movement rather than any breeze. I tried unfurling the Genoa with the engine in neutral, but there was too little wind to bother with and it was mostly in the direction that we wanted to go. I furled it all up. At 9.30 a.m. I sighted buildings off to the east, the port, and land was sighted after being offshore for the first time on this intended round-the-world trip. We anchored near the Pinellas Bayway. Navionics shows it with plenty of depths, but Garmin says it's extremely shallow. I saw many boats anchored there heading north from the Bahamas trip and was willing to trust Navionics. Navionics was right and the Garmin charts were wrong. The Garmin showed depths of 0.7 feet in places that I sounded at 10 feet. We entered on the northwest side near the piers and the condos and anchored towards the northeast. With winds coming from the southwest, this in theory was the most exposed corner. The north and east sides had the nearest land. Passagrill Beach offered a more distant southwest protection. We had no problems on this sunny afternoon. We put out 90 feet of chain and snubber in 10.5 feet of water. There were about eight boats in this anchorage, which could hold at least 10 more. Stevie and I went for a swim. He dove the anchor with his GoPro and said that it looked to be well buried. I tried walking down the snubber and chain, but could barely get about 60 feet along before giving up. Stevie tried to set up his hammock over the mast and forestay, but it all creaked under his weight, and I asked him to not do that. I was primarily worried that he would bend the external trisail track on the mast. Temperatures dipped down in the 60s overnight, making it near ideal sleeping conditions in the cabin for two sailors who had earned a full night's rest. That was chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 of Slow Boat to Cuba, the start of our round-the-world trip in 2016. We'll give you the other episode, or the other chapters, starting with chapter 9 in a future podcast episode. If you missed episode 28, you can hear the first four chapters in that one. Thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, and special thanks to our Patreons on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing who brought you this episode. Bye-bye.